This podcast is a love letter to every small business owner in Africa that dreams of growing big, every African executive that wants to get ahead, and every leader that wants more impact. I'm Tembi Kumalo, your host and the founder of Brand Builder Africa. We'll talk about everything to do with growing your business by building your brand. Hey Fadzai, how are you doing today? Hello Timbi, I'm great today. Thank you very much. Um, it's such a pleasure to be here. Um, I've been looking forward to this for weeks and thinking about what I'm going to share. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I'm so excited to have you here too. But where are you right now? So I'm currently in Harare which is the capital of Zimbabwe, which is the most beautiful country on earth, located yeah. in the south of Africa. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Yeah. So um, according to your introduction and your bio, you are someone that has taken steps to really live out her, her purpose or her calling, I should say. Um, and I, I want to, to see if our listeners can get some background on how you became this person. Okay, um, nice dramatic question to start. Um, <laughs> so I'm a constitutional lawyer and my journey as a lawyer probably started when I was 10 years old and my mother started giving my younger brother more food. And I'd be like, mom, why is he getting more? She'd say to me, no, he's a boy. He's a boy and he's got a bigger appetite, so he should get more food than you. And I was like, no, that does not sound right. <laughs> that is totally unjust. Um, and so, you know, from a very young age, I've known that I'm the sort of person who's got A, a sense of justice, mm. B, um, I've known that I'm very willing to speak out when I observe something that does not sit right with me. And then thirdly, I've had just a general awareness and curiosity about the state of the world and how it can be improved. So whether it's in my own home, whether it's in my family, my community, my country, and just globally speaking, I've always had the sense of, gosh, you know, what needs to change? What sort of human action is required to drive that social change? And what's the most effective, less, least harmful way to, to get there? So I'm one of those people, one of those very fortunate few who came out of the womb knowing that <laughs> I wanted to be a lawyer, that I wanted wow. to go into litigation um, and be in court literally seven times a week. That has been the dream for a very young age. And this dream has been fortified um, a number of times along the way. I remember when I was 14 um, in my history class and you know, I had a teacher in, in, in history, which was one of my favorite subjects. In fact, if not my favorite subject um, in high school, and we were learning about the League of Nations and the forma formation of the International Court of Justice in The Hague. And you know, I remember saying to her, it was a Miss Ridley. And I said to her, you know, Miss Ridley, I really, really want to become a lawyer. This sounds like such an interesting endeavor. You know, this is how the world's going to change. The law seems to be such an important tool to bring about justice. Mm -hmm. And you know, it was around the same time that we we're also learning about you know, the Nuremberg trials, you know, the various genocides that had happened around the world. And I was like, you know, without the law, it seems like mm -hmm. we can't ever um, get justice. So I really started nurturing my ability to speak, my ability to debate cogently, construct arguments, to write. And those are skills that tend to come more naturally to me than science does. And interestingly enough, neither of my parents are particularly humanities focused. So my dad is a prolific mathematician. So, you know, along the way, <laughs> you know, my, my, my head teacher who is known to my father 
because he was working in the Ministry of Education for years and years and years, um, mm -hmm. said, you know, she's obviously going to be a scientist. She's going to follow straight after her father. And, you know, my mother, for her part, was a nursing professional. So she was more a nurturer, but still, again, you know, very scientific. And I come from a Christian family. So, you know, normally in societal setups, when you say I want to be a lawyer, the first instinct that comes to everyone is you want to represent murderers and people who do bad things. <laughs> you want to lie and you want to push that. So there was really no appetite from the people around me to nurture this ambition that I had to become mm. a lawyer. But I held on to it because it was the, the drive internally was so strong. And after O-Level, I got practically straight A. So the world was my oyster. I could have gone either way. But mm. one of the, the, the moments that changed things a lot um, was after writing my O-Levels, um, the school organized for us to participate in what's known as the Insight Program, which was where you'd spend two weeks um, at a, um, a workplace. It was a work placement in a field that interested you and you wanted to pursue. I remember that a lot of my friends at the time had no idea what they wanted to do and where mm -hmm. they wanted to go. So they just picked random things. Because I knew very clearly that I wanted to go into law, I was very, you know, my, the decision was so quick. I was like, I want to go to a law firm, please. And mm -hmm. I was fortunate again to be placed for that two-week period um, in, you know, one of the best firms in the country, which was Stumbles and, and Rowe at the time. It's now been incorporated into Coglin Walsh and Guest. And it was at a time where the land reform program was in full swing and, you know, a mm. lot of justice issues had come to the fore. So obviously I knew nothing about the constitution or the technical details of the law, but I managed to, you know, get into this law firm at a time where there was just so much going on in the country. And so for that two week period, I gained insight. I sat in courtrooms. I, you know, sat in a law library. I managed to watch lawyers in action. I remember going to Rotten Row. Um, I remember, you know, one of the partners at Stumbles and Row at the time was Boyd Carr, who, um, God bless him, he's late right now, but, you know, he was such a, a an activist around matters of justice and law. Um, mm. You know, even though the country was facing all sorts of threats around the rule of law, he was very kind and, you know, showing us, um, it was me and a, a, another friend of mine who were placed in that firm at the time, mm. um, you know, very kind and explaining what, what everything was. I remember coming out of that um, and John Mayberg, uh, another one who was very, very prolific at the time and another uh, lawyer called, um, uh, sorry, his name, uh, Chibwe. His name was his, his name was Mr. Chibwe. I remember him very strongly. And another female lawyer who's now gone into corporate called uh, Rumbizai Jakanani. Very, very strong lawyers, all of them leaders in their fields. And I remember them impressing upon me, you know, these ideas around justice, these ideas around using the law as a tool to solve problems. And I came out of that two week period saying, yes, this is definitely the confirmation I needed, this is the path mm. that I want to go. I feel like being that professional who wears black to work every day and a pair of stilettos, who goes to court <laughs> and speaks my heart out um, about things that are important and in the, at the same time help people. Mm. And one of the things that they told me at the time was, you know, the quickest route to attaining um, a legal qualification that will enable you to practice in Zimbabwe is to go to the University of Zimbabwe. Obviously, I didn't like that advice because at the time I really wanted to go to Harvard or you know something outside the country. It was mm. a time at which almost everyone, all, my, all the friends around me, were leaving the country to you know pursue something different because things were getting uh, more and more difficult and strained in the country. Right. So fast forward to so fast forward to A level. Um, I obviously studied humanities, so I did um, French history and literature. Got really good grades and managed to then, you know, go to the the University of Zimbabwe. At first, it was against my better judgment, but then I said, look, 
this is what I want to do, so let me pursue it. Things were not great at the University of Zimbabwe at that time. This was during the period 2004 to 2008. So mm -hmm. the, the, there were very heavy resource constraints at the university. I remember we did not have a functional toilet at the time. There was no bond paper with which to, to print out our, our course outlines and to access basic resources. We had a fantastic library but it wasn't the era where every single student had a laptop. I certainly didn't. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, resources were very tight. However, again, you know, 2004 to 2008, it was such an important time in this country where mm. just living here was like being in a lab for, yeah. you know. I was going to say like an MBA. <laughs> Absolutely. And you live walked talked it every single day literally mm. this was the period where the access to information and protection of privacy act mm. um the public order and security act all that repressive we now know repressive legislation was being enacted and very important conversations at the time were taking place it was at a time where the real big changes that have crystallized um, in local government now really came to the fore. You'll recall, obviously, Trudy Stevenson, who was a member of parliament for Mount Pleasant. She used to take, you know, the, the minister of local government on left, right and centre. Mm. You know, you're reading all these judgments and you're studying them. It was at a time that Professor Maduk was really active you know, in the constitution making ideas and principles and he was really challenging the government. So every day, you know, he'd come to whether it was a class in constitutional law or a class in jurisprudence and really break down some of the great scholars of the ages, whether it's um, Jeremy Bentham, Kant, Dicey, but he would bring it home to the Zimbabwean mm -hmm. context. Mm -hmm. He would say, look, this is what happens when you don't have the separation of powers. This is what mm -hmm. happens when you don't have the rule of law. This, these are the, the constituent parts of democracy. And mm -hmm. he would say it, you know, with a bandage on his head, his arm in his skin because he's just been beaten up. And he'd oh, say, my Look, this is why, this is why we need democracy. And it, all of these things are so important because I really want to bring home the importance of timing and providence and you know mm. everything falling together mm. in terms of you know the, the formation of the things and the values that I hold dear right now and mm. um, so while the UZ did not have much in the form of material resources it was such a rich institution in as far as the quality of teachers that we mm. had at the time. I mean, we had um, Professor Falto, we had Professor Maduku, we had um, Derek Matishak, we had Lloyd Mishi, we had so many, we had Irene Petrus, you know, these mm. leading, leading, leading um, scholars and teachers at the time in the law. And I'm just so grateful for them because, uh, and Ellen Sitoli, I have to say as well, she was a very strong, you know, procedural teacher, procedural law teacher. What this meant is that, you know, as I studied, you know, as I read, as I thought about these ideas a lot more, I was assimilating them. I literally still have a lot of the principles I was taught in law school at my fingertips. For me, it wasn't just a cramming exercise. It mm. really helped that this is something that I was very passionate about. So learning about it just made me even more excited. So right. when we went to attachment at Rotten Row, attachment at um, the magistrate's court, civil court, and um, everything was really, really exciting to me. I remember after second year saying to myself, you know, I, I really, I'm, I'm curious. And that's one thing that I'm aware of in terms of, uh, you know, what drives me. It's curiosity. I'm never satisfied with the status quo. So I um, said to myself, I want to know more. All of this is all fun to read about and hear about, but I want to see it in action. So after second year, I put a CV together. It was a very basic CV at the time because after two years of law school, you don't have very much. But what I had certainly was a lot of energy and a lot of passion <laughs> and a lot of idealism. <laughs> idealism sure. is so important. Yeah. yeah. So I went to about 10 law firms around the city and I was like, you know what? My name is Fazaima Here. I want to come here during the, the vacations. So school ended about November, but between November and February, you were basically at home. And I was like, no, I don't want to be at home. 
but also I don't want to be scooping ice cream in a you know a takeaway yeah. place I want to learn more about the law so I said look I would like to come in on a voluntary basis you don't have to pay me anything I will do anything you ask you can ask me to be your messenger I can write notes and meetings I can carry bags I, I will do the dog work um you know because all I want is to learn Mm. Nine out of the 10 firms that I approached obviously said, look, no, we don't have time. You know, you, you don't know anything. No, 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 no. Until this one law firm said, well, <laughs> we could do with some free labor um, and decided to give me a chance. So I remember getting to Gollop and Blank, which was a boutique law firm that did um, a lot of land law, um, particularly ah. on the side of um, white commercial farmers whose farms were being dispossessed but it also did a lot of work um, a lot of judicial review work a lot of work that was challenging government decisions that that's what was topical at the time and a lot of lawyers wanted to steer clear away from that sort of work so mm-hmm. you even find that now that you know some lawyers will want to keep their brand um, apolitical, whatever that means. That word doesn't really feature <laughs> in my own dictionary, but story for another day. Mm. This law firm was really willing to take the government on head on. So the senior partner at the time was Abdullah Kassim, and he walked in. He's like, Well, this is very interesting. I really like in your cover letter this word voluntary. Do you mean that you don't care at all about us paying you even a stipend? I was like, you know what, it's absolutely fine. You don't have to pay me anything. I'll come to work in the morning with my parents and they'll pick me up when I go home. I just want to learn. So he loved that idea. Mm. And, you know, um, he took me on. And at first, I remember in, in the early weeks that I joined Gollop and Blank, the messenger who had been with the firm for like 40 years, really old man, was away sick. So I became the messenger. So I was literally delivering court pleadings, um, you know, serving summons, serving applications to various law firms. What that did, Tembi, is it allowed me to see the high court, know the various judges and their clerks Mm. of the high court, you know, walk around various firms. So if I was delivering a letter to, I remember particularly Chris Anderson at the time, who was the leading advocate at the bar in Harare, one of only two silks, and he's late now. But I remember I was asked to deliver a letter to him. And I was like, you know what, I'm not letting this <laughs> opportunity go. Right. I've read about this guy. And, you know, I was like, excuse me. So I got to Advocates Chambers, which is the set of chambers I work at now, but he was practicing there. And I was like, I've been sent by Mr. Drury, who was my um, principal at the time, to deliver a letter. Can I please... Um, see advocate Anderson so the receptionist is like yes um all you want to do is deliver it out yes um but I just want to explain something the truth of the look I'd read the letter the truth of the matter I just wanted my little elevator pitch two minutes to talk to this guy because he's such a legend so I go in there I knock and he's in his back brace because he's now a little bit old and so on so I was like yeah um you know advocate here's this letter for you and I was like you know what just two minutes I'm a young lawyer. I really want to grow. I really want to be at the cutting edge of the profession. What do you recommend? So this obviously took him to surprise, but again, it piqued his curiosity. He's like, who is this young black chick? <laughs> Just having the audacity to walk into my uh, room and ask this question. But anyway, right. I think he was so taken aback that he just answered. He's like, you know what? You need to be thorough. There are no shortcuts. Hmm. You have to read every single line and every single word. But anyway, I'm really busy right now. Thank you so much for delivering this letter. May you please take my leave. I was like, thank you so Mm -hmm. much. It was barely two minutes, but it was the two minutes that I needed. And that's been so transformative in terms of the way that I approach litigation and lawyering now. I, being thorough, there is no substitute in terms of attaining excellence to being thorough, to reading every word. You know, to making sure that you're to making sure that you're prepared every time you have to go before a, a bench, whether it's in the Supreme Court, the High Court, the Admin Court, making sure you know your stuff. And mm-hmm. so I've, you know, carried that advice, you know, mm-hmm. since then. Mm-hmm. And it's been so formative. Another moment that was pivotal was when I was working under Mr. Drury. Oh my gosh, did I learn? 
So he was inundated. Like I said, the firm was one of the few firms that was doing land work. So imagine mm. all the law, all the farmers um, in the country from Chipinge to Gweru to Chegu to all, mm. you know, wanting to lean on this one law. He needed the help, yeah. you know? So I was in this beautiful position where I was exploring, reading, you know, doing this very, very interesting work around the fields of law that was niche because it was growing and developing. You know, as I was working on these cases with him and doing the research, the Land Acquisition Act, you know, Section 5, Section 8 was all being amended. So it was all in real time. I remember at the time they also took a case to the static tribunal. This is after the, our own constitutional court has said, look, this, this is the end of the road for farmers. And it was just such a wonderful place to be. Mm. And as far as learning is concerned. Um, back at the UZ, because I've now seen all this law in action, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm certain I want about the kind of lawyer that I want to be. Right. So there, there are various kinds. Some lawyers do mergers and acquisitions. Some do conveyancing, which is more, you know, these fields of law are more, you know, paper pushing kind of work. Um, you know, some lawyers go into corporate. I was certain at this point, following my experience at Gollop and Black, that I was going to be a courtroom lawyer, the sort of lawyer who presents arguments in court mm. and uses their advocacy to win cases. I didn't want to be the lawyer who sits in the background and, you know, just drafts the paper, but doesn't go ahead to present the case in court. And obviously there was now this appeal of, you know, specializing in, in litigation. Time went on and at the UZ, I remember participating. I was very, aside from active class participation, I wasn't a prolific, you know, university student. So I didn't get involved in very many extracurricular extracurricular activities. I didn't have a ton of friends, um, but you know, I, I, I was just there, I was just about my work. Um, and I remember after my first month at Gollop and Blank, two things happened. Firstly, Mr. Kasim, who had asked me about the term voluntary in my cover letter was like, you know what, you're such an asset, we are going to pay you um, because you, you really are bringing value to the firm, um, even though it's just clerical. And it really goes to that thing where, you know, if your job, is to sweep streets, if your job is to chop lemons, just do it with such excellence, you know, do it as, as excellently, if such a word exists, as Michelangelo used to paint or as, right. you know, Beethoven would compose music. You really must bring excellence to whatever task you're asked to do because you really never know where it will lead me. For me, certainly that, that time at Gollop and Blank was a game changer. So they offered me the payment, but most importantly for my career, they said, you know what, outside class time, you can come and work here. Just give wow. us your timetable and we will, you know, set up a structure where you can be in and out depending on your availability. And that way you can learn, you could use the library, you know, wow. we can gain from you and you can gain from us. It was fantastic. It was, you know, uh, completely so um, this all came about just because you'd asked for the job and then when you'd got the job you'd executed it well it absolutely because somebody pulled strings or there was any... okay and there was remember what I said in the beginning that there was nobody around me nurturing this ambition Mm. This was all just me pursuing something very internal around where I wanted to go and to pursue, just forge my own path around who I wanted to be and how I wanted to show up in the world. Yeah. I then participated. Yeah. I want to interrupt you there because I feel like I'm, I'm going to lose this if I don't ask you now. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> so you're a young, young girl in your 20s. You're coming from a home where nobody's really excited or thrilled about your ambition um, and you are going into a field that is somewhat controversial there's not a lot of you have our blessing on this path that you've chosen were you ever afraid at that point you know at that time I wasn't afraid um, the excitement was just so, the excitement was huge. It's just like a little kid who is learning how to <laughs> run or ride a bicycle. They don't know about the dangers that exist. So all they have really is this 
um, you know, tempered idealism and mm. Jay, this, um, you know, this naivety, but it's right. positive naivety sure. because you're like, this, this is really resonating with something that's inside me and this is what I've always wanted to do. So I wasn't ever afraid. And, and, and you know, sitting, confidence counts. Yeah, yeah. Sitting confidence at... Counts. Yeah. Sitting at the UZ with, I mean, in my parents' eyes at least, UZ was like a, just a cauldron of temptations. <laughs> um you had kind of a level of freedom but you you were very very focused like you said you were about your work to what do you attribute that level of focus um and I'm asking this because a I'm a parent of a young adult woman and b uh I think a lot of a lot of women a lot of people struggle to stay focused like they they want something but there's so many exciting distractions and shiny objects that gaining that degree of focus is difficult so I wonder if there's something that we can learn from from what you did and how you were thank you Timbi so there are two things there are things that you can teach a child and things that you can't teach a child. It's almost like the child either has to learn these things on their own mm. or they have to be innate within that child. So I'm not sure where these three things fit, but the three most important things for me that were completely transformative at the time, number one, clarity. Mm. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I had written it down. This is like during high school, during sixth form, I knew exactly that, look, I want to become a lawyer, I want to qualify as a lawyer. I want to, having qualified as a lawyer, practice in a firm, be really strong at litigation. I then want to become a judge. Then I want to go to the Hague. You know, I was clear. Mm. Obviously there are detours, twists and turns, but if you've got something of a roadmap, about your own life and they have to be clear reasons as to why you want those things so i i love these are things that play to my strengths and to my skills Mm. i certainly wanted um a life that was you know better than the life that i'd grown up in look my parents were middle class but we were not rich Mm. i was like no I, i really want more for myself I really wanted to make my mother proud because growing up, you know, there was a a strong social sense that if you take a a girl to school, she's not going to do much and she will likely get pregnant. And, you know, there's no point in investing in her. We should Mm -hmm. invest in, in, in boys. So I really wanted to make her proud. I was also very ambitious. And I know um, having mentored uh, a lot of young women that not everyone is ambitious, but I so Mm. happen to be very very ambitious and I was not prepared to budge on the things that I wanted to do so when those voices came in doubting my path and saying you know maybe you should do medicine or maybe you should maybe you know let go of this or maybe you're moving too fast I didn't let those voices um cloud me because I was so clear about where I wanted to go around the temptations um my ambition was always stronger than my um need for 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 pleasure and passion (laughs) and and I knew how to have fun while staying on course does that make sense you know so I knew that look you know if you're just going to have unprotected sex with all sorts of randoms that's going to get in the way of this beautiful path it's going to slow me down Mm. I don't want that I always knew that I was not going to get married early because I saw all around me examples of people who'd gotten married early and what impact that it had on their careers. And I, I was very clear that I'm, I'm a career woman. Mm. Um, I knew as well, around, I knew about the sort of partner who'd be good for me. So right. I wasn't going to date a certain kind of man because I was like, look, I'm going places. You know, you have to be the sort of person who's going to be able to fit into my life when I'm a judge at The Hague. So right. if you don't have that <laughs> level of worldview. So I really was very fortunate 
because I knew from, a, I came out of the womb knowing. So the universe had already equipped me with so many tools. Um, I come from a Christian background. So values have always been very important to me. And I've had, you know, along the way, people who've been very important voices to me as, as, as I went on. My aunts mm -hmm. were instrumental in, you know, keeping me focused. They're the people who said, look, your, your husband is your book. So please just stay focused. <laughs> oh my God, that <laughs> sounds like aunt. my mother. <laughs> exactly. Well, the same aunts are coming now and saying, oh no, but Buds, don't you think you should settle down? I'm like, oh, you're the ones who told me that my husband <laughs> is my book. So I'm doing good. Uh, me and my husband are great. <laughs> Only joking. But those are some of the things that do help. Yeah. Models, models help. And these don't have to be, you know, when it comes to mentoring and role models and having people you follow and pursue, you know, people think it has to be like a, a big arrangement where I telephone big person X and say, look, you Will are you now my be role my model. Mentor? Exactly. Will you be my mentor? Can we have coffee every week while you, it doesn't have to be like that. Mm. I have been following Hillary Clinton since I was 13 or 14 years old. Wow. I would literally get all the books in the library while everyone was reading everything else. I'm sure I read some of her biographies twice. I was just so fascinated by this woman. This woman who was a powerful lawyer, interested in politics, married to another powerful man, but still willing to forge her own path. Mm. Um, I remember Thatcher, same thing. Um, there's mm -hmm. this very big biography of hers called Her Path to Power. And I used to take it out of the library like at least once a term oh to remind myself. So models are important. So yeah. once you know where you want to go, um, you know, it's useful to say to yourself, like who has walked this path or a similar path? Mm -hmm. And how can I learn from yeah. that person? You know, I often in, in job interviews, when I interview young people, I ask the question, how do you feed your mind? And, yeah. and now I'm actually learning to say even how do you feed your soul? Yeah. And I, I'm often disappointed because they'll say, well, I'm completing this course in, you know, I'm doing an, an postgraduate diploma in such and such. But, but the, the response that I'm looking for is exactly what you've just described like consuming the things that keep that fire alive that yeah. support your ambition that drive you when you are um you know feeling depleted that yes. replenish your energy for a, a particular cause or project um i'm interested yeah. that you've mentioned hillary clinton and margaret thatcher um, because that gives me a good segue into politics. Go, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, a couple of years ago, well, let me start with this. The choice of practicing constitutional law in Africa, I imagine, is a choice that is often going to have you um, hitting butts with the government or butting heads yes. rather. And that yes. I also imagine would be a frightening thing for anybody, let alone a young single woman. Yes. But you, you, you have come at it with great zeal. <laughs> yes. and, and I'm assuming that this has been your path, your foray into politics. Yes. First of all, this choice to practice constitutional law, this acceptance that you're going to butt heads with government, why weren't you scared to do that? Interesting. Um, I think, so after law school and after a bit of time and practice here, two big things happened for me um, that really made a huge impact. In, the, in, in, in shaping the prism through which I see the world. The first was um, working as a legal researcher at the War Crimes Tribunal for Rwanda, mm -hmm. which is a UN-assisted court um, located in Arusha, Tanzania. So this is a court or a tribunal that um, 
using international criminal law was bringing to account those most responsible for the genocide that took place in Rwanda in, in 1994. Mm. The second thing that impacted me was when I worked in the prosecution division of the International Criminal Court at The Hague. You see that dream of The Hague eventually <laughs> <laughs> materialized. But you know, at the time that I was working there, all the situations were African situations. So the Central African Republic situation, your Kenyan situation, Darfur, um, you know, all Congo and the crisis in the Eastern Congo. And, you know, the pattern that started to emerge from my practice of international criminal law was a pattern of what can happen when a government is allowed to abuse its citizens with impunity. Mm. What can happen when the government is allowed to use violence without any checks and balances? What can happen when the rule of law is abrogated? So whether in a, with, sometimes it escalates uh, into armed conflict, sometimes it manifests itself as a genocide or crimes against humanity. And, you know, every single time I would read, um, you know, my, my case papers, my trial briefs, all of these things, you know, uh, my heart was forever in Zimbabwe. And I was mm. like, so, so where, really, where is this going? This is what can happen mm. if the citizens don't stand up before it's too late. Mm. I had the privilege too of um, doing a master's at, at Cambridge where I studied in further depth, um, you know, international law. And again, I was able to see, you know, some comparative work um, to, to study comparative work. So countries that work and succeed and progress versus countries that don't. What are some of the features and components of nations that succeed versus nations that fail? And you know, I, I came to some very interesting conclusions, Tembi, mm. which I can summarize as follows, that if you don't have a good political system that's focused on improving people's lives, it will lead to national disaster. That disaster can be, like I said, a genocide, it can mm. be a war, it can be crimes against humanity. Things can get very bad and they can escalate very quickly. So, right. I remember, you know, at the, at the time that I then came back to Zimbabwe, it was initially to visit, but, uh, you know, eventually, you know, it was during the time of the GNU, so there was a lot of hope and optimism, they were, yeah. they were in the process of forming a new constitution, I then said yeah. to myself, you know, I've learned some important things, I want to put those things that I've learned and experienced into action. And I remember coming back to Zimbabwe, and I, I was very clear about the focus of the field of law that I wanted to practice, the field of law that really um, is, cent is, is, is centered around matters of human rights, matters of justice, matters of you know, holding the government to account, reviewing uh, government administration and government action. And I think what made me unafraid is because I knew what my rights were. Ah. I knew that I had the right to free speech, I had the right to freedom of conscience. I had the right to challenge the government. And, you know, I believed that I had various protections around the law. So I wasn't going to do anything illegal, but within the parameters of my constitutional rights, I was then going to practice and conduct myself. When I started, you know, outside the legal profession, nobody knew who I was. Mm. Um, but, you know, the more I realized that even the law is a technical fix to the problems and challenges that we face, the more I started to speak out. And this is when I started transitioning into the lawyer politician. And, you know, it's funny, we speak of Hillary, we speak of Maggie. Um, mm. they, they, they had similar sort of journeys in the sense of, you know, the law opens your eyes to certain things. You, it, it offers a very useful tool with which to analyze the world because you know it, it spans all sorts of fields you you, you look at finance you look mm. at government you, look mm. at, you know private law relations matrimonial mm. stuff so you you really are the able you 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 end up able to weave together a beautiful tap tapestry of how various blocks of social existence fit together and i remember saying to myself this is where the 
the cancer is. If we don't fix this, we can have the best constitution on earth, but we won't be able to take the nation forward. And, you know, obviously various abuses continue to happen. Various kinds of maladministration kept happening. But I think mm -hmm. what made me unafraid was knowledge of the constitution and what my rights were. Uh, that ha has been the game changer. You know, even when, you know, as I've, I've transitioned, those things are violated, at least there is a standard to which I can continuously hold the government and say, you know what, the constitution is our supreme law. The constitution gives every citizen a right to dignity, gives mm -hmm. every citizen, you know, political rights, the right to vote. It gives every citizen the right to challenge the government, the right to demonstrate and petition peacefully, the right to, um, you know, uh, freedom of freedom from torture, freedom from cruel, inhuman and degrading punishment. So whenever the government is abusing that power, you're able to say, hang on, you're acting in violation of section 59 or section 68 or section 67, as the case may be. There is a standard, a recognized binding standard to which you can hold their conduct. And that really um, fortifies one in their, in their beliefs and um, you know, the manner in which you approach matters of politics. What you then find, obviously, is that the law is a technical fix. It's not enough, because what happens when the government violates its constitution? What you then find is that, you know, the law is a technical fix and it's insufficient when the government, um, as in the case of Zimbabwe in various post-conflict African societies, um, you know, when they start violating the constitution, when they start breaching the law and mm -hmm. violating those very human rights, which should be the bedrock of the society where citizens are protected, which is when you then, uh, you know, segue into this political existence that until we fix that, the government's approach to matters of rule of law, to the government's approach to matters of human rights, the, the government's approach to matters of citizen protection that you really are starting to play in the political space. Um, because you're now saying to the government, well, you have to follow your own laws. You have to start, you know, putting in place policies that serve the citizens and it's not enough for you to just have the constitution on paper like a lifeless museum piece but you actually have to implement it and because they've got the power if you're in a dictatorship like we are to make laws and to change the constitution to even contain repressive laws to even oust the jurisdiction of the courts you then start to see that the political system is very important and citizens simply don't have the luxury of saying look i don't do politics i don't mm. want to get involved because you know genocide don't happen overnight um crimes against humanity it's it's, it's you know always the festering of uh, you know this maladministration on the part of the system that leads to to these egregious acts right so but you're a young a young woman coming from a let's say a little bit privileged background um mm. and and you are enduring discomfort in your quest to see a different world to see to live in a country that is closer to um the kind of country that you want to be part of now yes. there are there are young women all across our country and our continent who are saying look we also want a better world but we don't want to endure harassment we don't want to be imprisoned we don't like we want to live regular lives and you know <laughs> enjoy ourselves <laughs> yes what would you oh. say to them because not they're afraid on the one hand but also they are can I say they don't want to be inconvenienced? <laughs> what I would say to them is you, you can't have it both ways. You know, it's like expecting Martin Luther King to have been okay with just, you know, chilling at Starbucks and having coffee and saying, you know, I really want things to change, but I don't want the inconvenience and harassment. You know, real social change is driven by the actors who are prepared to be courageous around matters of principle and things that are important to them and that are tied to their purpose and they're willing to take a stand if you're not willing to take a stand nothing is going to change if 
you believe that protesting and speaking out is something that you're too pretty for or too educated to do or you know too professional to get involved in nothing will change Mm. and there's this thing that we always hear that people get the government that they deserve now i don't like victim blaming and blaming citizens but there is some truth to that if you aren't prepared to participate those who are prepared to participate are going to really um, get in the forefront. And, you know, if they are people whose values don't put the citizens first, you only have yourself to blame for not participating. Now, I accept that everybody's threshold is different. Mm. And, you know, some people have less of a tolerance for you know, sitting in Chikurubi for a week or whatever it is. And, you know, some people don't want to get arrested, but there's always a way to get involved. There's always a way to use your voice, to drive conversation, to, to contribute, to offer your services. So mm. you might not necessarily be the politician who's speaking out, but if they need human rights, defense and representation, be the person who shows up. You might not want to be in the forefront because you think your business is at risk, but right. you know, at least do something uh, in your community. Like I say, you know, everything comes back to politics. So you might say, I don't want to get involved in politics until, you know, there are potholes everywhere in your neighborhood. <laughs> uh, and, you know, potholes don't discriminate. You can say you live in a nice neighborhood, but the potholes will still follow because it's tied to the same maladministration. You can say you don't want to get involved in politics until the whole public health system is tripled to a point where everybody's health is at risk because, mm. you know, the, there are things like pandemics, no less, mm. which you can't say, look, I've got my nice international fancy medical aid, so I don't care about the less fortunate or those who are victims of the political system. I'm just going to look after myself. So it's about having the ability to see the relatedness of things in your crisis. Mm. You know, no matter how good a lawyer you are, if you're operating in a toxified ecosystem, it's going to poison your well. You might not see it immediately, but eventually you're going to say, oh gosh, you know, now they've come for my money, as took mm. place in Zimbabwe. Or you, you start to see that, look, you know, the, the, the school system generally is a school system that is not up to date. And so the employees you're going to hire aren't going to be to the right standard. And you can't always just hop onto a plane and leave. Thank <laughs> God for COVID-19 for making us make that realization. Yeah. So it all comes back to this idea that we have to huddle up. It's almost like you have to close the country and say, nobody is leaving. Let us fix ourselves um, at the root. You know, it's not about superficial cosmetic change. It's about, yeah. you know, reforming the country from the root to ensure that it starts to work for the many and not the few. So to the people who think that, you know, they, they don't want to be inconvenient, then unfortunately, you're not going to be the sort of person who's going to be able to be, um, to lead social change. And whenever changes happened, I mean, look at the suffragettes. It was just a few women right? Mm -hmm. I understand that the, the, the majority of society might not be there yet, but the ones who are and who are ready and who are prepared, um, you know, if they're a group of committed individuals, they do have the power to inspire hope and a thirst for change, which is what we need in countries like Zimbabwe so that we don't keep rolling back. Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, you know, inconvenience comes in so many forms. Um, and perhaps if you don't want one type of inconvenience, then you have to bear the inconvenience of potholes and bad health systems. Absolutely. And I think also it's about realizing that um, nobody's coming to rescue you. One. Mm, that's you, so important. You, you can't expect someone else to be the sacrificial lamb for the change that you desire. So in other words, just sitting around and saying, well, someone else should do it, or I really hate the way this is done. At some point, you're going to have to be the change you wish to see in the world. You, you really are going to have to step up. It's a responsibility. And make no mistake, I, I don't want to romanticize um, being a politician in Africa. Mm. It's extremely tough. Um, it's, it's male-dominated. It's violent. It's repressive. 
you're often on the receiving end of, um, uh, you know, a lot of bad things. It's not like being AOC, you know, you, you, you just waltzing in with your nice designer seat and speaking about green peace and social change. It's not, it's really, really hard. You can find yourself, you know, arrested for tweeting about something in name like uh, police brutality. You can find yourself mm-hmm. arrested for peacefully protesting by sitting in a park. You can find yourself arrested for convening a soccer tournament that brings, um, you know, and mobilizes your, your neighborhoods um, around, you know, whatever issue. You, you really find yourself in a very tough position, but the alternative is to sit around and wait and do nothing in which case you're going to have, you're faced with a lost generation. The next generation is going to be a generation that does not know what water coming out of a tap looks like. It's going to be a generation that is not familiar with electricity. It's going to be a generation that's lost in terms of their educational outcomes. Uh, you, right now in Zimbabwe, we've got a situation where people get to, young, young children get to grade seven without being able to read. Um, you know, such things should be unheard of. We've got a high, one of the highest maternal mortality rates in the world. You know, there's a time last year where 60% of the population was food insecure. All of those things tend to come where you've got a government that's maladministering the country with impunity and the citizens have to be emboldened to rise up. If one person stands up, they can shoot that one person. But if millions come up, I mean, you know, you just offer greater protection to the society. So I encourage more people to get involved in political processes. That's going to be the shortest route to us seeing, uh, you know, real change and a return to some form of democracy in countries like Zimbabwe. Can I ask a question that, that uh, plagues me? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there, uh, given that I've been asking questions for the last yes. <laughs> Now I want permission. <laughs> now you want permission, but go uh, ahead. It means something bigger is about to be asked. Well, no, maybe not something big, but something personal. Um, sure. I'm wondering, is there a way of getting the Zimbabwe we want or the Africa we want without being confrontational? I find um, it, the law is, is confrontational. It's, it's challenging. And I look at African culture and tradition, maybe. Mm. It doesn't like confrontation. Mm. Is there, and I'm genuinely asking just as a, as a human being observing other human beings, <laughs> is there a way that we could we could encourage one another to do the right thing without confronting one another in a way that says you're a bad person and you're doing bad things. Is that even possible? Do you think? As Thank you, Toby, for, for, <laughs> for asking that very good question. You know, if everything was right in Zimbabwe, I would be living my best life just, you know, the, the ideal for me is, you know, just spending all my time in my chambers, working on my briefs, going to court, coming back. No reasonable citizen wants to be waking up every single day to confront the government. When you start to see that start to happen, it means something has gone very wrong. Now, is there a way of doing it without quote unquote confronting the government? I think the answer to this lies in the examples we see around us. And I'll use Zimbabwe because it's a very good example of what can happen when there is no confrontation and there's this sort of tapping on the back, especially um, you know, when bad things happen. If you look at someone like Robert Mugabe, someone like Robert Mugabe doesn't just happen, the phenomenon. It's something that's built up over decades. So you'll see, for example, in the, in the early 80s, we had Kukurahundi, which was a genocide. Mm. Instead of confronting that issue, what did the citizens do? They, what, what did you say? You said talk, talk nicely and, you know. 
there was there was never any truth telling there was never any reconciliation there was never any justice for the victims and survivors of that of that genocide mm. we move forward to to another example um, of you know what happened with operation murambachino where you know urban urban dwellers their homes were just unilaterally violently unlawfully destroyed mm. And, you know, there was a, a UN team that came and they called it a crime against humanity. I, I'm sure you remember the Tijai Buka report. Mm. Again, there was no justice. There's no confronting what had happened, although people did speak out. But there was, you know, a sense of, look, let's just, you know. And then you, you, you fast forward even some more, the violence, the post-election violence that took place in 2008 in Zimbabwe. Again, no proper justice. Um, it's something that ought to have been confronted perhaps more strongly. Um, and again, it, we, we just sort of had that sort of, I'll call it a glossing over, and that's not to diminish um, those who spoke out at the time, but I'm just talking about what can happen when things aren't confronted at their root. Right. You then fast forward again to 2018 and 2019, where Military tanks were basically driven through the streets of Harare and citizens were arbitrarily shot and killed. Following that, there was some sort of, I'll say controversial commission of inquiry because they never really did anything in terms of forcing the implementation of their recommendations. But they came to the conclusion mm. that Mr. Mnangagwa had been the one who deployed the army and was responsible for, for, for the citizens who were killed. Now, if you don't, if you don't confront bad things, Tempe, they always come back. You can't gloss over. You can't, you know, run away from. You can't escape the consequences. You of can't bad negotiate. Well, we we tried to negotiate. Look at the GNU. That was an attempt to negotiate. The truth of the matter is this: that there are no quick fixes to change. Reform and transformation mm. are critical. You can't just pretend everything is okay. And it, it often happens in African culture, and I'm glad you cited that as the African way, that mm. a young, a minor girl will get raped instead of confronting that clear ill. There's an attempt to negotiate, to use your word. Instead of saying, look, Sekuru Ava is mm. raping has raped this young girl and it's unacceptable. So we, in my respectful view, we can't. That is not a solution. We've tried it time and again, and I could use the examples of Kenya, I could use the examples of the Congo, I could use the examples of many African countries, even South Africa, mm. and show you that unless you've got proper confronting of the issue, you won't get a solution. Look by contrast at what Rwanda did. When they had a genocide, in 1994, they had the temerity to stare what had happened in the face, to confront it and say, number one, we accept that what has just happened was a genocide. Mm. We are going to memorialize this ill. We are going to ensure that there is justice for the victims and we're going to ensure that those who are responsible are held to account. That is how you deal with problems in a society. And if you look at Rwanda now, I'm not suggesting for a minute that everything is perfect, but they're certainly taking great strides towards social change because there was that ability to confront the bad thing that had happened and to find solutions to ensure it doesn't happen again. So in short, no, <laughs> you can for a minute pretend that a lack of confrontation will yield certain outcomes. But when people say we don't want to confront, what they are basically saying is we don't want to be realistic about the position in which we found, find ourselves in. And I'll give you one last example, which is what happened in 2017. In 2017, after the coup, there's now you know, widespread agreement that it was a coup. Um, you know, Zimbabweans said, look, we, we, we perhaps don't want to be confrontational. Let's give this guy a chance. And with all the goodwill 
in the world. I mean, the international community, domestically, everyone was really willing to roll up their sleeves and make Zimbabwe work. What did they do with it? You can't ever, and I think that the jurisprudence on these ideas is very clear. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you don't have the checking and balancing of state power, of the executive action, it leads to bad outcomes, it leads to corruption, it leads to violence, it leads to dictatorship. It's necessary in a society, certainly in a constitutional democracy, for citizens to be able to confront very truthfully, non-violently, and mm. honestly, government around the things that they expect that government to deliver. I don't think that there is any sin in that. I, I don't see the fault in that, in citizens aspiring for a better society, in citizens saying, we want you to stop stealing the billions. And instead of stealing those billions, we want you to invest those billions in schools, in hospitals, in infrastructure, in development, so that the country, everybody can go forward instead of a few people becoming billionaires while the majority suffers and starves. That's a very courageous position to take, particularly in Africa. And um, I'm happy that we, we've come round back to that spot because that's really what this conversation and the series that we've been running is about. It's about saying to, to the, the continent, here are some women who have taken courageous positions about their lives, whether it is in, um, in their health, in their personal lives, in their careers, or in, in challenging um, situations that they, they believe are wrong in, in a nation on a continent. And I think what I would ask you about in closing is, what are three things that you would say to young women like yourself who are looking for that dose of courage to be able to make change happen in their homes, um, in their careers, or in their communities? Thank you. Um, number one, I'll be very quick. Number one, embrace ambition and have clarity of purpose. And invest in, in finding out what your purpose is. Invest in defining it. Invest in um, being true to it. Invest in, in just having the self-awareness of what you believe your purpose in life is. You mm. know, there are two kinds of people. The kinds of people who walk around life, they just wake up and life happens to them. And people who deliberately happen to life and really continuously push the envelope. So, you know, that clarity of purpose, number one, and embracing it, embracing if it's, um, it's, it's ambition. And the ambition doesn't have to be around being a big political actor, no. If your ambition is to raise young children, to be a homemaker, to raise children who are really going to go out into the world and show, out, show up strong. That mm -hmm. is a perfectly legitimate and valid ambition, whatever it is. If your ambition is, like I say, to sweep streets and to cut lemons, whatever it is, to be a lawyer, to be a doctor, to be an entrepreneur, carefully define mm -hmm. that ambition and that purpose. Because once you've got that clarity, you are so much better equipped to approach and confront life. And it is the thing that will drive you from inside when things get hard, because things will get hard and yeah. if you're pursuing anything in depth. Yeah. The second thing is that you don't learn very much from success. You learn a lot more from failure. So the lesson is to always learn, get up, and don't stop. You know, things do get difficult. I mean, I know when I was telling my story, it, it sounds like everything fell into place, but you know, one day I'll be quite vulnerable around some of the obstacles, some of the challenges that I faced. You know, um, the fact that I have to wake up with a very brave face every single day because I speak mm. on behalf of a big organization and I'm carrying the hopes and dreams of many on my shoulders. When I speak, people want that reassurance or that, you know, I show up in the Supreme Court on behalf of a client and that client does not care 
that I'm menstruating or that I'm having a hormonal, you know, mm-hmm. or that I'm feeling fat that day and not feeling very good. Mm. You have to deliver. So you, you really must ensure that you don't stop. And then the final lesson is around excellence. Like choosing excellence and very deliberately going out of your way to do the things that aren't done often so that you start to um, distinguish yourself mm. in whatever field you're in. This from a skills perspective, but also from a values perspective. But Zyma Hede must be known as a woman of integrity. There's just no negotiation about that. If someone says no, but there's someone who bribed the judge, people should be able to say never for Zyma Hede. She may be tough, but one thing we can't debate is her integrity. Competence, like reading every line of every word, like not making, not being given to silly mistakes in the execution of your trade. So if I'm an accountant, you know, I'm not going to make basic errors. If I'm a lawyer, what will start to distinguish you is that commitment to delivering a product that a client, customer can be completely proud of, that everyone can say, you know what, that Win or lose, that's the best representation I could possibly have received. You know, that lawyer for Dinah Hede, that advocate, she is champagne quality. Because once you start to do that, those people will start to be evangelists of the work that you do, and you start to get more. And the more you do, not only do you earn more, but you, you, know, you start to build your reputation, which is your currency, and you really start to show up in the world in this, this beautiful, beautiful excellent way and you will start to stand out and you will start to be able to have more authority and influence in the things that you do because you really emerge as a leader in the field um, i hope that's three things but maybe a few extra things in there but yeah those are my three ideas that i've snuck in that is wonderful thank you so much and i think that anyone who isn't inspired encouraged which is the point um and motivated by this episode would really have to be made of stone so i want to thank you (laughs) i want to thank you thank you for being here today but also for doing your work in the world um and for for holding on to your dreams and your beliefs because so many of us give way along along our journeys so well done to you and thank you thank you timby it's been such a pleasure thank you so much it's been an honor to be on this platform so thank you so much and may this platform continue to grow it really is you know continuing to inspire us and really you know keep women and uh, men (laughs) energized and excited so thank you so much You've been listening to Brand to Build, a podcast brought to you by Brand Builder Africa. We'll be back here next week with more thoughtfully curated content for entrepreneurial leaders who are doing business in Africa. Stay, subscribe, and let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear about next. To learn more, visit our website at www.brandtobuild.co or email ask us at brandtobuild.co.